This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. A really wise man once said to me, just be you and you can't fail. I just love that. I still, to this day, like 20, whatever years on, that grounds me and and it reminds me to just come back to who I am because I believe that the quicker we can do that and the quicker we can kind of be introspective about what our uniqueness and what we're here to do and we can amplify that, it's kind of the answer to everything, right? Because as you say, like the time spent looking outward, the time spent comparing yourself to others, it's completely wasted. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. Very excited to introduce our next guest, Emma Isaacs, who is a married mom of six kids, running a multi-million dollar company and leading a community of over half a million women globally. Emma is the author of Winging It, a book addressing a question she often fields. How does she juggle and seem to so gracefully manage many aspects of her life? A question we thoroughly discuss. Hope you enjoy, everyone. I am so excited about this conversation. It's such a pleasure to have you on, Emma. Welcome to Redefining Ambition. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this chat. I've been looking forward to it. So thank you so much. So where are you right now? Are you based in LA? Yeah. So you might hear from my accent that I'm originally Australian. I was born and raised in <laughs> Sydney, Australia. So I hope you can understand my <laughs> my beautiful little accent. Um, but yeah, we've lived in Los Angeles in California for the past five years um, and we love it here. We see ourselves staying here for as long as, you know, whichever president will allow us to. Um, but, you know, I, I have a big family. I have six young children and half of them have Australian accents and the other half have American accents. So it's a little bit hybrid. <laughs> that is funny. So we, I like to touch on how the pandemic has affected mm. us because it's transformed and upended so many people's lives and industries and businesses. Mm. And uh, we're going to get to the whole idea of winging it, which is the title of your book. And feeling like you have to do it all and do it perfectly, which is um, antithetical to um, your argument. And um, uh, a quote that you mentioned in your book is that you're someone who has never sought balance. Mm -hmm. And the idea of uh, having in your life this perfect equilibrium is something that is unattainable Mm -hmm. and elusive. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has made this quote, balance or the pressures of feeling like you have to strike this near perfect 50-50 balance between your personal and professional endeavors even more difficult to achieve. How have you been doing and managing? You have six children. You're managing (laughs) a multi-million dollar business. Your community, uh, which we're going to get to the business, um, community has reaches over half a million members. You have a lot on your plate. How how have you been doing during this unprecedented time? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the short answer is, I suppose I've tried to bring in the philosophies and ideals that have worked for me so far in business and in parenting. And that's to just kind of try and relax into every situation that we're dealt, right? So you've read the book and you 
probably remember this part where I talk about being pragmatic and not dramatic. And I think that's a really lovely lesson that we can all carry in all our endeavors. So um, when the pandemic hit, we obviously got into urgent action right from, you know, the minute it was announced as a global pandemic. And I remember assembling my leadership team. I have a CEO in my business and um, a leadership team. And I got our external accountant and our key financial people. And the first question I asked them was, okay, you know, give it to me. How many months or, you know, years of cash do we have? Because we, you know, are needing to look very far into the future and, and work out how we're going to mobilize for whatever this pandemic is going to serve our ways. So that was the first question I asked. And then we all just started, you know, getting into action about how we would save our business and, and how it would ultimately emerge from this because who knows how long it's going to be, whether it's going to be another six months, 12 months, we just, we have no line of sight to the end, right? So I think, you know, trying to do our best and relax into situations and be kind to ourselves is is very much something that I've taken as I've built my companies and tried to scale. And that's certainly been the, our response and reaction to the pandemic. Um, that's not to say at all it hasn't been completely challenging and completely overwhelming at times. And, you know, obviously having I don't have six kids at home because a couple of them get to go to, to school in person, but, um, you know, virtual schooling and sharing space with many, many other humans has thrown another kind of, um, you know, new element into the situation. So I look from, from a business perspective, the way we've dealt with it is to sit down and do our best. We obviously had to recalibrate a lot of our activities. We had to, we make our money in the majority part from live events. So we're very, very lucky to produce around 110 live events with speakers like Richard Branson, Ariana Huffington, Sarah Jessica Parker, Seth Godin, um, the list goes on, Gloria Steinem. So obviously one of the first activities Activities was to pivot into digital delivery, which was something that we didn't know how to do, but we worked out fairly, fairly quickly. We had to um, rationalise from a people perspective. So we had to unfortunately make some layoffs, which no leader ever wants to do. It's, it's the worst part of being a leader, but it was absolutely necessary to ensure the viability of the business. And we had to find new rhythms. You know, I mean, I remember having a meeting with our communications teams straight out of the gate and they were saying, okay, so scheduling for a month's time is, I said, hang on a minute. <laughs> Let's just all slow down here. Let's take a breath. I can assure you that this new world order that we're all existing in now does not work in one month increments. Like we are talking day to day. We've got to read the room. We've got to read the sentiment. We've got to be listening to our customers. We've got to be talking to our members. We've got to be in the moment with them, not talking about scheduling one or two months out. So in a lot of ways, this kind of thinking is what I've been talking about for the past um, really 20 years or so of building and scaling my companies. And that is, you know, this idea of winging it is really all about we can't see too far into the future you know perhaps 50 years ago in business we could sit down and write a plan for five or 10 or 15 years into our company's futures but right now the speed at which technology develops the speed at which you know the, the world works means that we can only plan in fairly short increments so for me um this has kind of been a, a moment of putting everything that i've been trying to preach to my people um, and my customers for years that we only have what's in front of us. We don't know what's what's around the corner. We have to walk through uncertainty. We have to, you know, walk together and just put one foot in front of the other and and do our best in every single moment. And that's to me the philosophy of my book, Winging It, that that you've kindly read. Um, and to, you know, this pandemic for me is just all all about these ideals that I've been banging on about for so long. <laughs> you talk about being kind to yourself, and mm-hmm. I really appreciated. Uh, in reading your book, you know, some of the tactics you use to be kind to yourself, whether that's meditating, whether that's you know, having a 
gratitude journal, which I encourage all of the listeners to begin journaling. And I'm going to you know, be jump on that bandwagon and begin doing that as well. Mm. How have you tried to become a kinder version of yourself to you, someone who has treated yourself with more kindness? The stress of the pandemic is enormous. It's, mm-hmm. it's overwhelming. It's insurmountable at times. How have you been able to cope with the stress and advice you can offer to those who perhaps aren't very kind to their own selves? Mm, That's a beautiful question. And listen, I I am by no means the world's best meditator. I have tried it a few times and I, I, um, I can, I can meditate in the shower and I can meditate while driving, but sit me in front of a rock for 20 minutes and I, I would be the first to get up and leave. But yeah, I, I mean, I think what you touched on there, being grateful for what you have, and it's true that it's impossible to be stressed and blessed at the same time. So really trying to have a perspective that, you know, really if we have a roof over our heads and if we have our health, then we're very, 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 very lucky. And we have it better than, you know, most of the population. Um, and, you know, certainly the stress of the pandemic, uh, I don't want to downplay it all, the frontline workers and the people who had to show up, you know, every day and, and serve. I mean, f- for me, I've, I've been immune from that. You know, we've been staying at home and being in our own, uh, you know, world and, and that's been great. Um, so I think this this idea of being grateful is, is really important. I think also, though, a lot of the stress that we create in our lives and our careers um, is self-perpetuated. So we, we make it up, you know, and I talk about it in the book as well, this whole idea of comparing and despairing to others. You know, we're constantly looking sideways and thinking, oh, wait, I haven't achieved what that person's achieved and I'm a year older than them, so I should have had it all figured out by now. Or, you know, that person person's earning more money or that person's going to Europe on their summer holidays or it's just this constant kind of cyclical debilitating practice that we all seem to do so when you find yourself in that compare and despair cycle you need to put your phone aside and find what brings you a little bit of joy or what brings you a little bit of peace you know for me that comes back to being present in whatever I'm doing and I really really try to have a really um, kind of linear focus on whatever activity it is that I'm doing in any moment I often fail that's not to say that I have perfect precision with, with focus. I absolutely don't. But really just trying to be in the moment and being present is, is really great um, for me. And the other thing I do is I, I have a mantra that I say to myself and, and that's, you know, be kind, like you're doing your best. I say that to myself 20 times a day, you're doing your best, you're doing your best, you're doing your best. And I think we can relax into that a little bit more um, and stop looking sideways at what everyone else is doing and try to find the things that light us up and that do take away the stress. Um, you know, life does get a little bit lighter. Um, again, not, not trying to downplay at all, but I just think there there are definitely tactical things that we can do to, you know, go within and, and it might not be meditating, it, it might be something else for you, but for me it's definitely been this idea of being present with my family and being present and focused on my work and that's what's got me through so far. We're going to get to comparisons. I think that's a really interesting topic of conversation to have. I want mm-hmm. the listeners to better understand where some of these passions might have been developed. Hmm. Your father was an accountant, mother was a teacher, and you had this really interesting quote in the book that uh, your mom would tell you that you were bossy. Yeah. (laughs) You were quick to tell her that you were gearing up to be a leader, which I (laughs) loved reading. One of my favorite lines of the book. Mm. I'm sure you're referred to as bossy. You're someone who's extraordinarily ambitious, which is very inspiring. 
And uh, I'm sure that you were an outcast to be a young girl, a woman who had these tremendous goals in life. You had someone who you were someone who liked to take initiative. How did that um, this dissonance between trying to conform to how society has probably uh, conditioned you into believing you had to act and behave um, conflicted with how you were behaving, where you were someone who was taking initiative. I mean, that ha- that carries over into people's lives. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I suppose I'm still learning it to this day. And it's very, very hard to shake the conditioning of your childhood and the conditioning of society. But to colour what you were saying so generously there, um, my story is that I, I was, I am the eldest of three kids. So I was sort of that oldest child archetype and always trying to do things first. I was the kid who would get all the other kids in the neighbourhood together in my parents' backyard. And I would tell them all to go and borrow some money from their parents and bring it back back to me and then I'd take that money and go up to the local store and I'd buy candy and bring it back and we'd unpackage it and then we'd package it into little smaller packets and sell it back to the parents at a really inflated price so they got you know I was I was kind of trying out these leadership and entrepreneurial skills from a very very young age and from there I went to school I I come from a very very highly academic family of all the 17 or so grandkids I'm the only one without completed university degree so off I went to uni. I lasted for six months because, you know, I'm a very, very experiential learner. I like to roll my sleeves up. You know, everyone's educational journey is completely different. But for me, I wanted to, you know, go out there and experience a big, bad world. And and again, that defied the convention of my family. So that was a difficult time. And it's actually funny now I get to speak to lots of different universities and colleges. And I remember, um, you know, very early on, I, I bought my first property when I was 19 years old. And from there, I had a, a goal to buy 10 investment properties. And I achieved that uh, my my mid-20s. And I remember going home to mum and dad's house and saying, guess what? I, I bought my 10th investment property today. And my mother just looked at me and she said, oh, but Emma, when are you going to finish your university degree? <laughs> so she's never really shaken this idea that, you know, to be successful, you have to have a degree. Um, but but listen, I mean, I think she's, I think she's kind of proud. She's, she's getting there and she's, she's good now. So and then I started my first company when I was 18. And, and so it goes, um, obviously extrapolate all that out in, in the book. Um, I think, you know, you asked, how, how do you do that? I mean, I think it's about having a self-assuredness. I think it's about, you know, being really, really clear about your own vision um, for what you want to get up to in your life. And, and you might not be able to articulate that beautifully in one or two sentences right now, but it's just about having that discovery and exploration into, you know, why you feel, um, you know, you're here on this planet. And and for me, I think to go back to that vision of me as a seven-year-old kid selling candy, you know, your childhood gives you clues. Your childhood gives you clues as to, you know, why, what your reason for being is. And, and you know, um, we should, we'd be wise to look into that. So for me, I always knew I wanted to be a leader of some sort. I didn't know that that was, that meant having my own business. I didn't know that meant being an entrepreneur. In fact, I had my first company for probably three or four years before I even heard that word. So I didn't have this, you know, clearly thought out plan that I'm going to own my own small business one day and, and make a success of it. But you just, you follow the clues you know it's like a little treasure hunt you, you follow the clues and you pick up the candy and you you figure it out as you go and I, I think when you're so self-assured about why you're here so for me I want to inspire other people and I want to be a role model for women and I'm very very clear on that if you have that kind of north star if you have that market that for which everything else could be judged against you can make decisions based off of that you can 
you know, work out whether an opportunity is the right one or the wrong one for you, that it's really, really helpful kind of guiding, guiding light. And I've always, I've always known that I want to be that for others. Um, and again, you, when you had this notion of serving as well, it's, um, you're more comfortable being a misfit, you know, when you, when you know that you're here to serve others, when you know you're here to teach, when you know you're here to try and be a role model, that takes it off of you and it, and it moves you into this, this idea of serving and, and being there for other people. So I've never really had a problem with being a misfit and, and doing things differently. I, I think it's more fun. I think it's more fun to defy convention. And I think it's more fun to be curious and to make your own way and to you know, tread your own path. So I think, you know, we, we, we take life a little bit too seriously. I think we overthink. I think we overanalyze. I think we're in our heads far too much. So, you know, the first available opportunity, I try and let all that go and just say, hey, what feels good for me to do here? Let's just go try that and we'll see where it takes us. It's more fun that way. I completely agree with you. <laughs> really important. Mm-hmm. And it takes time to identify what that might be and what your purpose is. Mm-hmm. So how did you go from dropping out of uni, founding mm. your first company at the age of 18 to the United States. You ended up buying business checks Yeah, and you met Rowan, your husband. How did, how did all, what is the timeline of events in between mm. that time to business checks? Yeah. Great, great question. So I dropped out of uni, met a, a woman, a young girl out socially. She had just started a little recruitment company she said, what are you up to? I said, I'm studying business. I want to get into HR eventually. She said, listen, I've got this little recruitment company I've just started. Come along and have an interview with me. I went into the offices the, the week after, met with her and her business partner, got the job. And again, I was I must have been 18 at the time. I was the first there at 7 a.m. every single morning. I was the last to leave the office at eight or nine at night, I would do every single job. There was not a job I wouldn't do. I'd made sure everyone had fresh coffee, fresh water. The trash cans were emptied. I would make sure like every desktop was clean. I saw that the off, that the color of the walls were different to the color of, you know, our logo and our business card. So I got my dad in to paint them one weekend. Like I just made sure I was completely irreplaceable in value from, from the get-go, which is a, a little bit of a different kind of mindset to, you know, perhaps a millennial way, not to, not to bag any gorgeous millennials out there, but um, you know, I just, I just wanted to make my mark and I wanted to be noticed and I wanted to work hard because I'd always been brought up with a very, very strong work ethic. And so a, really a couple of weeks, it was very, very short after I started there. Um, the woman and her business partner had a conversation and it turns out that he wanted to, to leave. It was all very, very amicable and they still remained friends. But as he was walking out the door, he said to her, because she wanted to have, she wanted to be in business with someone, he said to her, um, if you're going to offer equity to anyone in this company, you'd offer it to that kid sitting over there and he pointed at me. And, you know, I had I had some savings from a waitressing job that I'd done throughout school. And, you know, we struck a deal which saw me as a 50% shareholder in this tiny little recruitment company. We were about four people when we first started. We got up to about 40, 45 people by the time I ended. So it was a beautiful little business. We had a great culture. We won heaps of different awards. It was fantastic. And then to that timeline was seven years. Um, at about that time, a friend of mine invited me along to a business chicks event. And I remember my initial reaction to that was, there's absolutely no way I'm going to anything that calls themselves chicks. I mean, that's derogatory to women. It's insulting. I'm, I'm a feminist. I'm a serious entrepreneur by now, you know, there's no ways. And she said, you need to get over yourself and you need to come along and experience this thing. And I, 
really up until that point, the way that I'd been able to grow the business was through networking, was through building relationships with people, was through being curious, being asked to be connected with people, not being shy in, you know, approaching people to become mentors, not being shy to ask questions. I, you know, I just really tried to flex that courage muscle through, you know, approaching people and and picking their brains. And, you know, there there was no one that I would be scared to ask to spend time with. So I was really surprised when I I learned that there was this network business chicks that I hadn't heard of. So in I went, fell completely in love with the concept. It was like this amazing kind of rock concert mixed with a board meeting. It was a high energy, highly produced, very, very supportive and nurturing environment. People were high-fiving and hugging. And remember when we used to be able to hug (laughs) those days? And anyways, I, I learned that soon after that the business was for sale and, and I shouldn't say it wasn't even a business back then. It was founded by a charity and they would get a guest speaker in and sell some raffle tickets to fundraise. And they quickly realized they couldn't make any money from doing that. So they wanted to pass it on to someone else who um, happened to be me. I negotiated the rights to buy the business, incorporated it as a business. I really quickly saw that there was no business model. I mean, it wasn't a business, but there was no business model in pure play events. Like to run an event is, it's very, very tricky to make any money from that. It's very, very skinny margin. So I started to interrogate the business model and work out how else we could diversify the offering. So that became paid membership. So we have a subscription model, which is fantastic. We obviously uh, pre-COVID made money from the live events. We've pivoted to digital now. We have a great B2B business um, partners and brands attached to our assets and events and content. So that's a great part of the business as well. And we produce a magazine. So we've really tried to diversify the the offering and productize over the years and make sure that we're not just reliant on one revenue stream, which has obviously served us really well these past six months or so. So that was, that was 15 years ago that I bought Business Chick. So really we've spent the past 15 years building it into what it is today. It's an extraordinary community of people who truly believe in one another. It's like, I like to say it's a sisterhood in, you know, real life. It's a lot of our members have been members for 10, 11, 12 years. They've traveled the world with us. They've started businesses together. They've met their best friends. It's just a really, I feel very, very blessed to do the work. It's, it's, incredibly rewarding and uh, satisfying to hear the stories that come out of the community. It's amazing. We're seeing record levels of loneliness and community is more important than ever. To you, why is community so important, so necessary in someone's life? And what are you most proud of that has emerged from the booming of this business? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, 15 years ago, certainly in Australia where we started, there was really you know, there, there was no one commercializing community. There was certainly no one, um, you know, we had we had churches, we had synagogues, we had sporting associations, um, but this kind of notion of, you know, you have business associations, but they were, they were fairly archaic and certainly not progressive in any way. So I remember when I started Business Chicks, it was, there was us and one other sort of women's association and I wanted to bring, you know, a liveliness to it. I wanted to bring a spirit to what we did. I wanted people to feel proud to call themselves a Business Chicks member. I wanted them to... You know, if we gave them the opportunity to tattoo the the logo on the, on their arm, you know, and and we've really been able to to do that. Um, I think the way we've been able to do that is is through shared experience. I think the way we've been able to do that is through truly noticing people. Um, I think it's about not attaching to a number, even though we've become you know this huge community, and that's amazing. I can still tell you the names of uh, so many of our members. You know, I mean, I I think it's important to see people individually. I think it's important to. Um, 
you know, listen intently and to be there for people. I think it's important to be generous with um, what you know. I think it's important to be generous with your knowledge and your networks. And I think people, um, you know, they sense that. They sense the authenticity that you're there to serve and that you're there to help and that you do want to connect them and that you do want them to be, feel part of something. So for me, community um you know, has certainly been the way that I've been able to to grow my businesses and, and the community in which we've grown. You know, um, I think with the pandemic, one of the first things we did, we, we saw very, very quickly that everyone was going to be working remotely and that would, as you say, dial up, um, you know, feelings of loneliness and disconnection in a lot of ways and everything else that came with it. So we quickly um, mobilised to do virtual meetups and they became really popular really, really quickly. And there was no huge magic in them. It was just a, a chance to say to our membership, listen, if you want to have a chat, we'll be online from this time to this time. And, you know, again, some beautiful friendships and beautiful business connections have come out of that time. So I I think um, that was sort of a silver lining of the pandemic. We probably wouldn't have done those meetups had we not felt the need to do that. Um, But but I think, I mean, we all know this. We all know this. It's impossible to do things on our own and we need others and we need the wisdom of others and we need to never feel silly to ask questions and to admit that we don't have the answers and we need to constantly be putting up our hand and saying, I don't know the answer to that. And my experience has been that people genuinely want to help and people genuinely, you know, are willing to be generous with what they know and to help the next person. Um, I think a lot of the time we think we shouldn't ask for help and we should you know, pretend like we've got it all together. But um, my experience has been the opposite, that the the faster you can learn to rely on others and and truly admit you don't know everything, um, yeah, this whole world opens up and it's it's worthwhile doing. You have just touched on so many points I want to address. (laughs) I think that one of the main thesis of your book is that no one really knows what they're doing, that, you know, as your title says, that you're winging it. One of my favorite lines of the book is when you highlight what is winging it, what is not winging it. Winging it means trying something before you think you're ready. Winging it means less second-guessing yourself and more going with your gut. Winging it means more time for going with the flow and celebrating the unexpected. Winging it means getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And... I think those lines are extraordinarily inspiring because it's antithetical to what they teach you, especially in university. When a lot of people look at you and say, you have six kids, you're married, you are running a really successful company that you built from the ground up, that community of hundreds of thousands of women globally look up to you, that can feel like a lot of pressure. I'm sure many people compare themselves to you. I'm sure you compare yourself to others. What to you has been able to embrace your accomplishments, feel like you're winging it, that you're not going to know everything? And what has, what has been the, the learning experience to emerge from this thesis? Mm, that's a beautiful question. A really wise man once said to me, just be you and you can't fail. I just love that. I still, to this day, like 20 whatever years on, that grounds me and and it reminds me to just come back to who I am because I believe that the quicker we can do that and the quicker we can kind of be introspective about what our uniqueness and what we're here to do and we can amplify that, it's kind of the answer to everything, right? Because as you say, like the time spent looking outward, the time spent comparing yourself to others, it's completely wasted. So I actually, I don't do that. You know, I'm constantly just in comparison with myself about how I can do better. I'm 
constantly asking myself these questions, like if I'm upset about something, it's like sitting down with yourself and having a tough conversation and saying, hey, is this actually working or is it not working? Is it working that I'm spending all my time thinking about X, Y, Z? Is it working that I don't have enough time with my kids? You know, So really just this constant self-debate or introspection, just trying to reconcile whether you're getting up to what you want to get up to in the world. So I've had a coach, a business coach for many, many, many years now. And every single session I go into with, with her, I think that I'm bringing my business problems to her. I'm thinking I'm going to work through this business problem with her. And always all your business challenges and fears and problems all come back to your self-beliefs. All of them, every single one is just a reflection in the mirror of how you're feeling about yourself, whether you believe you're worthy or not, whether you believe you have the skills or not. I suppose that's why I talk about in the book, we've got to be think, working on our self-talk. We've got to be working on our mindsets. We've got to be working on our belief systems. And, and that's, that's, that's a life's work. You can't achieve that in you know your four years at college or however long it is. It's your life's work to keep telling yourself you're worthy and that you're capable and backing yourself into situations and believing in yourself. Business to me, is just a complete reflection of whether you believe something is possible. And that's just kind of been fun for me to experiment with and play around with my whole life. A lot of people would look at you and say, Emma, you have so much confidence. Even if you don't know what you're doing, you will figure it out. You've been able to manage so many different aspects of your life. How have you been able to, over time, build confidence? We hear a lot of people say it's a muscle. You're constantly trying to exercise, building that muscle. It's a hard one. There has certainly been many moments in my life where I haven't had the confidence that you might assume. You know, I started off as a kid being a leader and being almost invincible. And then the more life experience you kind of gain, sometimes you can be set off course a little bit. It's kind of the return to being yourself. It's a return to values. It's a return to the practice of putting yourself in situations where you do gain confidence and and build courage. It's not to say that it's foolproof. It's not to say that you arrive at confidence. If you're so caught up with thinking about, oh, what are they thinking about me? And how am I coming across here? And do I appear in intelligent, like you're kind of missing the whole idea of being in the moment and being present and being curious. The greatest skill any person can have is the the art of questioning, the art of intently and deeply listening and asking questions of others, you know, and that's a really beautiful gift that you can give to other people, your attention and your time and your listening. Your job as a leader is not to give the answers, right? Your job as a leader is to help them uncover the answers. So that's anyone in my team will tell you that I do that all the time. Like I'm never, ever going to tell someone what they need to do. Uh, And you even touch on comparison in your book saying that it's easy to compare and constantly looking outside of ourselves for validation, seeking outside Mm. validation. A line I love you say is we have to stop thinking like this and instead look inward and say, what's my uniqueness? What's my gift to the world? Which I think is such a beautiful line of your book. So I want to transition to something that I I immediately came to my mind. A few years ago, I read a book called Mommy Wars. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or if our listeners are familiar with the book. It's a really fascinating read. And there's this conflict between working mothers, stay-at-home mothers, and women who do not have children, whether they are working or not. It's this fascinating read about the dynamic between these various groups. You are someone who has many children. (laughs) Half a dozen. (laughs) Half a dozen children. And you've been able to achieve tremendous success in your professional life as well. I'm sure you've come across women who might perceive you to be a threat. Do you see that often where women can compete detrimentally with other women? And, and why do you think that is? The, the way I've been able to 
manage building the beautiful family that I have and the global business that I have is to just have this complete presence and focus on what I'm doing. I've really gotten good at not looking sideways. You know, to start with, my time is fairly limited because, you know, I'm always working or I'm always with my family and everything else kind of falls to the wayside. But I just would never be bothered about listening to anything that anyone else had to say about me. I would never be a person to judge another woman's choices. If someone wants to have a family or not, I would always try and have a huge amount of compassion for people who did want to start a family and, and weren't able to. I think, you know, it, it is just getting back to having compassion and kindness and being a, a better human. Every single person has a unique set of circumstances that have brought them to this, this point in their lives and far from it for me to judge anybody. It's funny. I do get asked that question about business chicks, you know, do do you feel that women compete with one another detrimentally? And do you feel that women have to walk over one another to get ahead? To be really honest, it has not been my experience of the way that women, certainly within our community, work. I'm not sure if I've got complete rose-coloured glasses. I'm not sure if I have this complete utopian view of the world. But genuinely, honestly, what I see and I believe, you know, you kind of attract more of what what you put out and, and the more of what you, you know, it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. I honestly see women helping one another, being there for one another. I, I don't see the cattiness. I've not allowed that, I suppose. I mean, I think the beautiful thing about what the way I've led my life to this point, and that means I've had my own companies and not worked in different corporates. And I'm not for one second saying this doesn't happen, but it's meant that I've been able to choose the people that come into my life because I get to employ the people who come into our businesses. My lived experience of women has been nothing but supportive and wanting to help. And perhaps I just live in la-la land. I don't know, but lucky me, you know, because I believe we are such allies for one another. And when we build our support networks, that's been a huge bonus for me, you know, to have the girlfriends I have around me. I'd like to think that perhaps it's just because I've built a really phenomenal network of people around me. I don't know. Do you think it's utopian? I don't. I think that in many regards, it's a myth. Certainly in our community, in the Women's Network, I haven't seen anything but kindness and support mm. collaboration being shown. And mm. I think that types of women like that are out there and you have the choice to decide who you choose to surround yourself with. If you choose to seep to that level, I believe it's a waste of time mm. where you can do so much good with your life. Mm. Why waste it on gossip? I agree. I think it's a bit of an outdated myth. I think also it holds us back and does a disservice to women to assume that that's, that's the way it is. Like I said, <laughs> if you're busy and you're up to something, you would not have the time for gossip or to worry about what anyone else is up to. Let me tell you that much. That, that much I know. <laughs> you are an entrepreneur and a lot of people glamorize startup life. It's more convenient for people to see you on a magazine cover, book being published, and you on the spreads of all these online articles. But what they don't see are countless hours of problem solving and issues and burnout and stress and fear. And in your book, you quote Cheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook, lean in author saying fear is at the root of so many of the barriers that women face, fear of not being liked, fear of making the wrong choice, fear of drawing negative attention, fear of overreaching, fear of being judged, fear of failure. We hear all the time entrepreneurs saying, I'm not afraid of failure. How have you been able to overcome a lot of doubt that I'm sure you've encountered? And how have you been able to to tackle this notion of being fearful and in, in pursuing high-risk endeavors. 
Listen, I think you're 100% right. We glorify entrepreneurship and we put entrepreneurs up on this pedestal. It's almost unreachable, you know, unattainable. And the Elon Musks, the Richard Bransons, the Ariana Huffingtons, you know, it's it's very, very easy to look at people like that and think that it's easy and that they've worked it out without failure, without any adversity. Uh, we all know that's not the case. And we all know that entrepreneurship is incredibly hard. And, and it's, you know, whilst I believe there are a bunch of skills you can learn to be a better entrepreneur, you know, it's, it's a tough gig and I would like to see more people being more honest about what it takes to build and scale a company and I think that we are seeing a little bit more vulnerability and fallibility in our, in our leaders but I've had a couple of company failures and again ultimately learned that focus is what's needed in my business. I, I think you would have read in the book I started a supplementary business while whilst building business chicks and it just completely derailed me from my focus of building the profitable company that I was put on this planet to I am someone who's really struggled with failure. I mean, it's not something that comes easily to me. I'm a recovering perfectionist and highly ambitious and very, very determined. So I don't wake up going, you know, feed me failure for breakfast. That stuff sucks. Like it's it's not fun at all to fail. Like, I don't know. I don't know where, where people get that from. I am in the trenches of entrepreneurship right now. So I hope that I can bring a very practical and timely set of lessons that aren't given 20 years after someone scaled and built and exited their company. But we all know this and it might sound a little bit philosophical for, for some, but it, failure is part of the journey. You know, there's whether that manifests in the collapse of a huge business or whether it, it manifests in a relationship not going the way you want it to but it is something we all have to come to terms with. I think from my experience, what I've learned is that the quicker you can bounce back, the quicker you can recover from that failure. We, we all just have to, again, relax into understanding that it's absolutely not like that for anyone and, and no one has this perfect plan to, to get from A to B. It's just not how life works. So expect the failure, bounce back from it as fast as you can and just know that you're not alone. So mm-hmm. I have a lightning round of questions I want to ask you. Yeah, fun. Let's do this. Okay. (laughs) What is your most memorable quote? If it is to be, it's up to me. I love that. And I think about it all the time because if I'm ever in self-doubt or if I'm ever sitting here thinking, whoa, that's too ambitious, you know, someone's going to achieve it. Someone's going to do that. So it might as well be me. What is your morning routine? Morning routine. Well, I've got a three-month-old baby right now, so I get up and feed the little guy. Um, I don't talk to anyone until I've had my first and last cup of coffee. (laughs) So I need that caffeine hit for the day. And then it's just, listen, right now we're wrangling kids doing virtual schooling and working. I'm writing my second book right now. I'm in publicity for this book, which has been fantastic. The book is actually sold out in its first week, which is the most extraordinary gift. It's crazy. It's crazy. So they're madly reprinting now, which is a a beautiful project to have. But, you know, my life is funny that I live in the States and my business, the majority of my people are in Australia. So I focus on my work here in the mornings and then Australia comes online in the afternoon. So I can be working 24 hours a day. I mean, we're, we're across four time zones. What are you most proud of? I'm proud of my relationships and my reputation. What is one question I didn't ask you that you wish I did ask? <laughs> oh, you're the best. You're the best interviewer. This is awesome. Where can people buy the book? I'm sure you're going to ask me next. <laughs> it's currently being restocked. It's sold at a Target and Walmart and Barnes and Noble, but they will be able to get it on Amazon soon. Or you should become a Business Chicks member because it's only $47 a year and the book is included right now. So you can just head to businesschicks.com and check that out. 
If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? I think you did a beautiful job at leading this conversation. I think it all circles back to one thing, and that's just to to do you, honestly, to, to be you. This whole idea of dialing up our own uniqueness, of amplifying our own gifts, of looking within for the answers. And I think that's just a beautiful lesson and insight for us all to be reminded of and to not look sideways, to stop comparing yourself, to stop wasting time, to just go out there and do you and believe in yourself. And that's about 27 messages in one. <laughs> I like to over-deliver. <laughs> well, Emma, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Emma is wonderful. It was such a pleasure speaking to you and highly recommend you buy Emma's book, Winging It. You can find it on all of the sites that Emma just referenced and we'll link it to our Instagram. Beautiful. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends, and if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.